As a United States Senator from North Dakota, my top priority is always getting a farm bill done and making it as strong and bipartisan as possible. That's why I'm so excited to be on the Farm Bill Conference Committee. I'm ready to fight for North Dakota's farmers, ranchers, and rural communities and work around the clock to get this bill done before the current farm bill expires the end of September. I often say that any day I'm able to spend with North Dakota farmers is a good day. They're hardworking, down-to-earth people that have a lot of common sense. But these days it's getting harder for our farmers to remain upbeat in the face of trade wars, low commodity prices, and an uncertain future for NAFTA. There's real anxiety on the farm across my state, and passing a strong farm bill is one way we could alleviate some of that stress and ensure that a strong safety net is in place. People who aren't from rural America often don't know just how important this farm bill is to our United States economy. And so I'm going to talk with two people today who have deep knowledge about why the farm bill is so important for North Dakota and so important for our country. First up, I'm excited to have Secretary Tom Vilsack with us. He's a two-term governor of Iowa and uh, the most recent, uh, most recently, United States Secretary of Agriculture for the Barack Obama administration. In both capacities, Tom was an effective and vocal fighter for rural America. He has a deep knowledge of the Farm Bill, its implementation, and its importance to our farm communities uh, in North Dakota and beyond. As I help write the Farm Bill, I work closely with Tom to make sure it was implemented in a way that was good for North Dakota. And I appreciate his consistent and uh, ever-prompt help and uh, uh, taking a look at how uh, agriculture could work better in North Dakota. During his eight years as, uh, as Secretary of Agriculture, he was known as not only a great secretary who was always engaged, but one of the smartest people in agriculture today. And he continues in his private work to um, work for farmers and work to promote ag markets, and I'm proud to know you, and I'm proud to have you on the show. I think what's interesting is when you have a governor from a state like Iowa, you know, you know that that's a governor who understands the importance of the ag economy to the the Middle West and to the Great Plains. And uh, you know, I'm 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 struck with um, uh, this uh, this challenge that we're having today because the I think the 14 Farm Bill Secretary was just so well done and well implemented. Um, we didn't have a lot of heavy lifts in this latest farm bill. We we tweaked some things here and there, but functionally and fundamentally, the 2018 farm bill that we just passed in a very bipartisan vote, the biggest vote, by the way, Tom, of any farm bill since its inception, the inception of the farm bill in the Senate, um, we we now have a farm bill that is uh, was fairly easy to pass because uh, the 14 farm bill was so well done. I think to your credit and to the credit of um, all the ag leaders who were in the uh, in the Senate at the time and in the House at the time. So um, welcome to the hot dish, Tom. And I, I guess my first um, my first question would be: um, I'm on the conference committee. You obviously follow this stuff closely. What advice would you have um, for me um, as we work through some of the discrepancies between the House and the Senate? Well, first of all, Senator, let me thank you for your service, and let me thank you for your deep concern for rural places, not just in North Dakota, 
but throughout the United States. Uh, you have been a champion for farmers. You've been a champion for ranchers. You've been a champion for folks who live, work, and raise their families in rural areas. And I think it's a testimony to your uh, to your credentials and to your judgment that you've been placed uh, on the conference committee, because that's obviously a, an incredibly important role in putting the finishing touches on, on a very important piece of legislation, the 2018 Farm Bill. So I feel pretty confident uh, with you and, and some of your colleagues on the, on that conference committee that you're going to come up with a great product. Uh, as far as advice is concerned, I think first and foremost, get, get it done. <laughs> uh, I think people are very anxious out there in the countryside, and I think the more we can provide stability, more, the more we can give them a direction as to what's going to happen over the next couple of years in terms of the farm programs, in terms of conservation, in terms of renewable energy, uh, in terms of rural development and research, uh, the, the better off they will be. Uh, so I think I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, conference committees are being selected and conferees are being selected, that there's a real desire to get this thing done before September 30th. You'll remember we, we had a delay in getting uh, the 2014 Farm Bill done. It was delayed uh, well over a year uh, because of uh, differences of opinion. It's great to see the bipartisan work that, that you helped to foster in the Senate, and hopefully that same bipartisan spirit will work uh, through a quick conferencing uh, of the two bills. There are some significant differences, um, and I know that you're aware of those differences, but uh, your listeners may not be as fully aware of the differences. And so uh, I would uh, strongly urge you to hang tough on the Senate side. I think the bill that the Senate put together is a very thoughtful bill. It's a very bipartisan bill, and it has the best chance of getting the votes in both the House and the Senate. Well, and that that really will be the challenge, is that even though I might agree um, uh, kind of philosophically with uh, some of the provisions in the House bill, it's it we are in trying times in American agriculture right now. Um, and, and we desperately need to have some level of certainty. Getting this farm bill done on time, I think, sends a message that we care about rural America, but that we also are listening that um, farmers need the predictability that a five-year farm bill will provide um, kind of going forward, and they don't need the uncertainty of, of extensions. I mean, one of the one of the big challenges, and I'm just uh, just uh, tee this up for you. One of the big challenges, uh, obviously, in the conference committee will be the differences in the nutrition title. Now, what's interesting about that, I don't know if you noticed this, Tom, but um, in the government reorganization, um, the president has recommended moving nutrition out of agriculture, uh, out of USDA and over to uh, HHS. Um, you know, I think that that's, that continues to be uh, an erosion of this relationship that we have had between the people who eat and the people who grow food and that relationship first forged by uh, Senators Doyle and, and McGovern, two, not two inconsequential names in American agriculture and, and coming from my part of the country, but they knew that in order to make the Farm Bill relevant to a very many uh, urban senators or urban uh, congressmen and congresswomen uh, that you needed to form this alliance. And I see this, this this movement, uh, which could erode overall support for the Farm Bill. And plus, I don't think we can get um, a, a majority of senators um, to approve the House Farm Bill. You couldn't get one Democratic vote for the, uh, excuse me, for the House. You couldn't get one Democratic vote for the House uh, Farm Bill um, in when it passed through the House. And so I don't know how you can expect that's going to pass the Senate. And getting this done is important. And, you know, I, I think, Tom, 
maybe what would be helpful is to explain what some of the current work requirements are in in the nutrition title and how those were administered and then how you worked with states to um, encourage that uh, people um, have an opportunity to transition back to the workforce if they needed food assistance. Well, uh, look forward to that opportunity. I, you know, I think first and foremost, it's important to, to uh, point out, particularly the farmers and ranchers who are listening to this, that when you talk about SNAP, that you invariably are thinking about those families that are struggling. Uh, you're thinking about people with severe disabilities who can't work or senior citizens who've had a, a career but now live on a very small retirement income or working uh, moms and dads who are taking care of children. Uh, you think about that, but you don't think about the fact that every time someone walks into a grocery store and purchases something, that 15 cents of every single dollar uh, that is spent in a grocery store ultimately ends up, if you will, in a farmer's pocket. So when there are proposals to reduce and to cut and to, and to substantially uh, uh, reduce the amount of investment in the SNAP program, there is a corresponding reduction in farm income. And at a time when we really want to see farm income stabilized, we want to see farm income improve. Now is not the time, in my view, to look at significant and wholesale reductions uh, in, in, in farm programs or in farm income. Uh, and the work requirement that is being proposed, here's the problem. Uh, first of all, 80% of the people receiving SNAP uh, are, as I said earlier, people with disabilities, senior citizens, or people who are already in the workforce with children. So you're talking roughly about 20% of, of the uh, recipients of SNAP. And those 20%, these are able-bodied individuals, adults who don't have dependents, those folks basically today are required either to work or to receive training for 20 hours a week. And if they fail to meet that threshold, then in that circumstance, they only are entitled to benefits for three months out of every three years. Three months out of every 36 months, they can get benefits. So obviously, uh, the, the notion that people are gaming the system uh, is, is really not accurate. Um, there is a circumstance, a situation where states are required to administer the, the, this requirement. And so it's uh, incumbent upon state governments to do a better job of linking workforce development opportunities with the people on SNAP. State governments know who the SNAP beneficiaries are in their state. They also know where the jobs are being created, and they know what, what, what is needed uh, in terms of uh, job seekers. So the key here is to have a better system within the states in connecting the jobs with the job seekers. Because most of these people want to work, and most of the people will work. In fact, a good percentage of them go back to work in a relatively short period of time. Right. Um, I mean, I think that did. there isn't, I think this idea that there are people who are consistently lifelong recipients of, of um, SNAP assistance or what we used to call food stamps, that, that, that is not an accurate characterization of the, of the uh, folks who are on food assistance unless they are disabled or elderly and unable right. to work. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and so if you, if you have that basic understanding and you have the understanding it's the state's responsibility to essentially link people up with jobs and, and so forth, and you have the understanding that those who don't have dependents, those who are able-bodied, are required to, to do a work requirement or an education requirement, you begin to think, well, th what is this really all about? And, and the reality is that what folks want to do is they want to extend, the House wants to extend the work requirement to even uh, – you know, folks who have small children. 
And that may sound like a, an idea. Well, that you know, what's wrong with that? Well, here's the problem: if you've got a working family that's struggling, it's really hard to get childcare, right? So, mm-hmm. so what do you do w- with reference to childcare? Or it may be that these individuals have a hard time with transportation. They're in a rural community. The jobs are in the city. They can't get to the city. So, it's more complicated. And that's why in the 2014 farm bill. What we did is we said, look, we want to give some money to states to really look deeply into these problems. How do we better connect job seekers with, 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 uh, with the jobs that are being made available? How can we reduce these barriers for the returning veteran who may be having a difficult time uh, you know, transitioning back to civilian life? How do we deal with someone who may have had a substance abuse or opioid issue uh, who's now on the road to recovery? but because of that issue might have a difficult time finding, finding work. How do we handle those folks uh, and do, do the reduction of SNAP the right way? And these programs were two- to three-year commitments. We haven't yet really received the information or the, the results from those particular pilot programs. There were 10 of them throughout the country. Throughout the country. Why wouldn't we want to wait to find out what works? Before we create a huge bureaucracy, which is what the House bill does, it provides billions of dollars to states to create a bureaucracy that they're not really equipped to handle. Um, so the, the the Senate proposal, I think, is much wiser. It's it's much more focused on on efficiencies, on on making the program work better, uh, and to make sure that states are given the 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 time to figure out what works. And then once we figure out what's work what, what works. Then you invest heavily in those in those models, and you encourage states to adopt those models. That seems to me to be a better way to approach this than to create a billion dollar uh, a year uh, bureaucracy for states governments that are not really equipped to do this job very well. Yeah, I, I think when when you step back and you actually compare the two models for those people in states like mine who think the states always can do it better. The best model is the is the uh, reforms and the provisions of the Senate bill. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that we've gotten great um, feedback from the faith-based community, from, uh, from the hunger uh, community who are saying these things will make it extremely difficult for families that are struggling with health challenges, families who are on the other side of the digital divide who don't have the ability to log on to a computer either you know, because they're impaired in some way or because they just don't have access to the Internet. We're just putting another barrier in there that doesn't mean that they would be denied benefits. It just means that they've got this administrative hurdle that's going to cost incredible amounts of money to administer. And so where it sounds good, because, you know, everybody thinks that able-bodied people should work, and that's that's our ethic in the Midwest, certainly. It, it, sounds, it sounds good when you look behind. What you discover is there are work requirements and that we already have some pretty good ideas on how we can enhance those work requirements to really help people out of poverty. And and so I, I, I just have to have to commend the work that, that you did in the last Farm Bill. Um, and I, I know that, um, you know, it was always interesting because when, when Tom came into the Ag Committee to report on implementation, he had a one-pager with the columns and little notes, and then he would sit and bore all of us to death with the excruciating details of how you were administering the Farm Bill, but you never failed to impress your, your knowledge and your commitment, not only in terms of your leadership, Tom, at USDA, but also just, I mean, you are one of the wonkiest um, uh, secretaries I think there's ever 
been. Um, but I, I want to get your perspective. I know you've been working uh, closely um, on on NAFTA, the NAFTA renegotiation on behalf of the American dairy uh, uh, industry. And I know that you've been uh, following this this trade, uh, some people say disruption, I call it a trade war. How disruptive do you think this is going to be to our future um, trading relationships? Well, here, here's the problem. When you lose market share, you don't just lose it for one season. You potentially lose it for multiple seasons. And I think the deep concern, if you're a soybean producer and you see the value of your crop being impacted 20% in a matter of weeks because of retaliatory tariffs, if you see, uh, if you're a dairy producer and you see uh, losses on the futures market in excess of a billion dollars, and you know that's going to impact your bottom line, and the only thing that's changed is the fact that retaliatory tariffs have been put in place, you know that trade matters, and you know that depending upon how trade is approached, it could it could make money for you or it could cost you money. Uh, the president's taken three steps. Uh, first, he pulled out of TPP, and you would say, well, you know, he promised to do that, and, and we understand that. But the problem is that he didn't have in place bilateral trade agreements that would allow us to sort of take the benefits of TPP to our pork producers, to our beef producers, uh, to, to the dairy producers that were negotiated in TPP and be able to access those benefits in Japan and Vietnam. Uh, those those bilateral agreements were in place to replace the TPP agreement. So the result is the Europeans benefited from that pullout. Um, then the second thing he did was to basically call up a, a renegotiation of NAFTA. Certainly understandable. Probably it was certainly over long term, uh, uh, you know, it, it needed to be done. But you need to complete that renegotiation in a relatively short period of time because now you've got a lot of anxiety. You have the imposition of steel and aluminum tariffs that have resulted in retaliatory tariffs. In dairy, for example, the significant financial advantage that we had uh, between ourselves and our European and New Zealand competitors is gone. The retaliatory tariff basically wiped out that financial advantage. We have a logistical advantage, but we do not have that financial advantage. And, and it has caused Mexico to think about potentially diversifying its its purchasing of, of dairy products. We have 75% of that export market right now. Uh, we want to maintain and grow that market. Uh, and we we have an opportunity with NAFTA, and we ho- hope the administration understands this, and I think they do, to, re- to open up the Canadian uh, dairy uh, market, which has been closed for far too long. And that could be a, a significant benefit. If that's all the administration had done, we would probably be, you know, we would be encouraging a, a quick resolution to NAFTA, and perhaps uh, uh, at the end of the day, we would be in better shape. The situation with China, it isn't so much that you disagree with the fact that they're going after China. China's a bad actor, no question. The question is, when was the last time the United States of America went to war with no allies? <laughs> we, we went alone. And when you go alone, the, the initial reaction of the Chinese is to say, okay, where does the United States have an advantage over us? Well, it's pretty simple to point where that is. It's in agriculture. We sell a whole lot more to them than they sell to us. So naturally, the first place they looked to try to impact our system was in agriculture. And our pork producers, our soybean producers, our dairy producers are on the front lines of this trade war and have clearly been, been hurt by it. 
Uh, and I, frankly, I'm not sure that the, 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 uh, the administration, if they had gone to the Europeans and gone to the Japanese and said, look, we're all not being treated fairly by the, by, by the Chinese, let's go as a world community to the Chinese and demand that they change their way of doing business. Then who would the Chinese have retaliated against? They couldn't have retaliated against the rest of the world or the entire world. Well, and, so going and, it alone yeah, put and, us in a heck of a position. And the great irony is that was TPP. And, and I, I, I want to ask you a quick question about TPP, but now we're hearing reports that China is forming regional trade alliances with our trading partners in in the Pacific, you know, including uh, Australia. And, and so China sees an, an amazing opening right now um, to replace the United States in, in those kinds of relationships. And I think I think, again, going back to your point, once you lose a market, it's awfully hard to get that market back immediately. I want to give some some numbers so that people understand, because I think there's this idea that we can bring China to its knees, um, that they're so heavily dependent on American exports, um, uh, given their gross uh, domestic product. But if you look at China's gross domestic product in 2017, Chinese exports and goods to the United States was equivalent to less than 4%, 3.9% of China's GDP, and the exports of goods and services was equivalent to about 4.1%. And so for people who say, well, we can, you know, we'll just crush them, you want to say, do you think disrupting less than 4% of their GDP is going to crush a, a, um, uh, a government that's communistic and has been around and uh, believes in tough negotiations, not year to year, but uh, millennial to millennial. Um, you know, it's just, it, I think there's been an underestimation of the um, the tenacity of, of China and the long, the long ball that China's playing as we are playing very short-term um, disruption with tariffs. And so, well, I, I mean, I got an opinion about this. It's, I've not been shy to say it. I think that this is the wrong direction. You're, you're absolutely right. I think there was this notion that because we buy more of their stuff than they buy of ours, we can just have escalating tariffs, and eventually they'll run out of things that they can put tariffs on. We won't, and we'll hurt them more than they hurt us. Here's the problem with that strategy. That is that China also owns a good deal of our debt. They can basically play with that debt, and that could impact interest rates, which infects, impacts every single business in the country. Or they could manipulate their currency again, which they, they appear to be doing, uh, which basically would erode any any uh, impact of, of uh, tariffs. our tariffs. So you have to take you have to take the comprehensive view, and that's why it's important to have allies, because you essentially create a system where they can't pick on any one country or any one aspect of an economy in a country, and it would have made it much easier to negotiate with them. As it is, it's going to be tit-for-tat for an extended period of time. And unfortunately, again, the people who are on the front lines, the people who are taking the casualties here, are the farmers. Now, yep. you know, the administration's got the, 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 the program, and, and we appreciate the fact that they're, they're, they're providing some help and assistance. But at the end of the day, that help and assistance is a one-shot deal. It doesn't basically compensate you for the loss of market that you're going to have to endure potentially for a number of years. And 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 honestly, uh, Secretary Purdue um, said that this will not 
be uh, compensate our producers 100% of what they're even going to lose in this growing season. And you know and I know that uh, supply-demand curves are critically important in commodity pricing. Um, you put a year's worth of supply in a grain bin and then uh, start talking about what you're going to do next year. Um, you know, it's pretty tough to see soybeans recovering in terms of price. Well, I sincerely hope that, uh, you know, I think Secretary Purdue's doing a, doing, doing a pretty good job. He's doing the best he can. I think he's out there trying to encourage more trade. Here, here's the reality. They've got to get NAFTA done, and they've got to get it done quickly. Uh, hopefully they're making a headway with Mexico, and hopefully that, uh, in turn, compels the, the Canadians to come to the table. Uh, get that done, and then let's figure out how to bring the rest of the world with us uh, to the Chinese to convince, convince them that it's in their long-term best interest to have a fair system. Well, it's interesting because China has certainly been courting the rest of the world while we, while we um, impose tariffs. It's it's uh, it's interesting to watch. You know, there's there's the old thing in, in uh, Chinese that a crisis is a dangerous opportunity. They certainly are taking this. They're being opportunistic about this trade disruption. There's no doubt about it. There, and that's why getting back to the farm bill. That's why it's important to have the farm bill done yeah. because it's the farm bill that does provide some degree of assistance and help to some of the producers in terms of the farm bill programs. Uh, and I think there are some. You know, obviously, it's important to reauthorize them and and make sure that they continue to be working in, in the right way, tweaking them as I think the, uh, the Senate bill does. You know, there is a little bit of a concern about whether or not the House, with allowing limited liability companies to, again, back it, be back in the business of benefiting from uh, these programs and basically double-dipping uh, multiple times. I think there are some concern. I know Senator Grassley is deeply concerned about this yeah. uh, with, with good reason. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, the House will allow that to happen, which will cost more, but at the same time, we'll be looking for ways to reduce the funding for the nutrition assistance programs. Well, I just have one more question, and it's about dairy. And you were heavily involved um, with uh, Ambassador Froman in uh, the negotiation and monitoring TPP developments in the past administration. You guys were able to get some concessions on milk um, in Canada, weren't you, in TPP? We were uh, a, a small concessions, and but 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 what was significant about TPP was the ability to basically check countries like Mexico and Japan from entering into agreements that would have harmed our cheese industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're familiar with geographic yeah. indicators, which is a technique that the Europeans are using to try to monopolize certain types of cheeses, and only they will be able to sell those kinds of cheeses in markets. Right. Uh, and because of pulling out of TPP we essentially gave the Europeans the ability to go into Japan and Mexico to negotiate uh, opportunities with them that will now make it easier for the European Union to sell cheese and more difficult for us to sell certain types of cheeses. At the same time, we lost the benefits uh, of market access in Canada. So hopefully with the renegotiation of NAFTA, we can reclaim those market access opportunities and eliminate Class 7, which has distorted the powder market. But, But in the meantime, our cheese uh, challenges uh, are, are are important in terms of Japan and, and, and Mexico and the EU. Yeah, and, and I think it's important to note as we talk about modernization of T, TPP or modernization of the NAFTA, what 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 you're going to hear more and more is 
there was a fair amount of the work that that is being done right now on NAFTA that was actually done in TPP in terms of modernization. And so all these things are interrelated and, and it's 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 trying times for my producers. And, you know, we always compare it to um, 2013, Tom. Great year for American agriculture, great year for um, the Great Plains and the Middle West. Um, you know, so we shouldn't always compare it. But when you look at net farm income, even before the trade disruption, we were predicting net farm income was going to be cut in half from 2013. So um, just so yeah, people understand how tough very, it very is. Tough. And, and yeah. basically, the, what we should be looking for is more market opportunities, stabilize those prices and get them, get them up, uh, as opposed to making more difficulty and more anxiety out there. And, uh, we, so we have a hungry world. Let's feed it. Yep. Yep. Quick passage of the Farm Bill uh, with your work on the conference committee. Uh, let's get NAFTA wrapped up uh, quickly, and then let's recruit the rest of the world and go to our Chinese friends and reopen uh, market opportunities there. Well, listen, Governor, Secretary Vilsack, we love you. You do great work and um, continue to fight for rural America. You're a great partner um, during your years that uh, we overlapped, uh, both as a senator and a, and um, your time at USDA. Always appreciate your insight, and thank you so much for joining me on The Hot Dish. You bet. Next up, we'll be chatting with Ryan Peterson, Vice President of North Dakota Soybean Growers Association. Ryan's a soybean farmer, is an active voice for uh, North Dakota agriculture, and certainly an active voice for uh, the soybean uh, uh, growers. He visits my office in Washington, D.C. often, and he frequently travels to Capitol Hill to advocate for the needs of North Dakota farmers. He knows what farmers need in the next farm bill and how we can support our farm communities. He also understands that um, right now we're challenged in American agriculture. Um, we had a great couple years, a uh, couple years past, especially 2013, and and we're now looking at uh, uh, net farm income basically being cut in half. I wonder how many people, uh, Ryan, who aren't farmers could take a, a 50% uh, haircut in their, um, in their paycheck and still survive. And so that's one of the things that I always marvel at is the resiliency um, and the willingness to take risk of American uh, agricultural producers and um, North Dakotans do it better than almost anyone. And so I want to thank you for joining us on the hot dish. I want to tell you, you know, we got some good news. I'm going to be on the conference committee for the ag bill, for the farm bill. And so, um, you know, any advice you want to give me there on uh, improvements that need to happen, that would be greatly appreciated. But this is our chance to maybe educate beyond farm country um, what's happening happening right now in, in American producers for American farm uh, farmers and ranchers and what we can do to facilitate um, more certainty. And so I guess the first topic that I'd ask you about is, you know, can you explain to people who are listening how important the farm bill is um, to, to your livelihood? Absolutely. And first, I'd like to say you know, a little bit about our farm and thank my my dad, and we've had the same hired man for 24 years, and having that stability on the farm has allowed me to become active in the growers' groups. There's a lot of great guys out there that would do a tremendous job that don't don't have the opportunities because of 
the help situation they have at home. So I'm very appreciative to what we have on our farm. And it has given me a great under, opportunity to understand how important the farm bill is. You know, it's really, I look at it as the backstop of agriculture. There's the front fold issues, you know, program payments, Title I stuff, but there's also conservation issues. There's education issues. And there's a lot of things that are going on in Farm Bill that are affecting farmers every day that we may not even understand, like research in, in canola or education about biodiesel. Yeah, and, you know, when you look at uh, how important that that farming uh, economy is to the overall economy, not just of rural America, but all of America. These are issues that that we don't look at just what are we going to do this year. That's important when we look at crop insurance and Title I programs. But we think, what are the challenges that we have right now with disease, with pests? How can we be more efficient with water? And all of that is embedded in this farm bill, along with rural development opportunities, so that our farm farming communities have uh, uh, opportunities Opportunities to thrive beyond the farm and, and create opportunities in rural America. You know, the thing that people forget is rural America, um, when you look at poverty rates, the poverty rates are higher in rural America than urban America. And um, this is our opportunity to grow that those opportunities in, in, uh, uh, in our rural counties and make sure that we keep the lights on, make sure that we have the right broadband, make sure that we have the conditions that are ripe for uh, uh, diversification of the farm economy. And so, you know, when you look at the farm bill, um, you know, how important is it, Ryan, for us to get it done on time? You know, it's very important, and we're so thankful that someone such as yourself will be on there that understands the nuts and the bolts of it and not just the big issues. You know, you, you bring up broadband. We're doing some work with a drone, doing some mapping, and we don't have Internet speed fast enough to be able to process and analyze the data the drone's giving me. So we have to run into town and bother a local business and use their Internet to try to get some of our work done for the farm. So getting access in the future to that high-speed internet is just a little thing that it'll improve our efficiencies and it'll allow us to do things and move forward farming, whether it be better fertility, better disease prevention, and use the technology that's coming out there. And, and so much of that technology really can help you control your input costs. And people don't think about that. I, I always remind people that very many uh, North Dakota farmers have a million dollars invested before they ever take a crop off. Absolutely. I mean, the, the numbers are, they're scary to <laughs> even think about. So some days we just don't and we, <laughs> we keep going on. But it's, it's what we need to pay attention to. And, you know, and having the farm bill and it helps, you know, take something like CRP where adding some acres to CRP, there's so much in North Dakota that has something like saline issues. So being able to put a pencil to it is, is this three-acre corner of my field? Should I be farming it? Or is there a program? Is there a conservation program? Is there CRP that will let me generate a little revenue? Put that land in the CRP, probably where it belongs. We don't need whole fields. We don't need whole farms in the CRP. We need spots of fields in the CRP that will benefit both our bottom line 
and it'll benefit the hook and bullet crowd. It'll make habitat for wildlife. And that, in turn, brings in hunters, helps rural communities during the hunting season, the cafes, the, you know, the farmers' unions. Yeah, that, you know, selling a few jackets and uh, getting, I mean, that's part of our cultural heritage, too. And I want to just point this out, that some of the the most amazing stewards of that natural resource, which is our land, is really our farmers out there who are looking, who every day appreciate what the land's produced for them in terms of income. But they have a, they have a unique affiliation and association with um, with soil. And I, I get laughed at because I have a soil column in my front office and people kind of look like, well, what's this dirt doing here? And I go, it's not dirt, it's soil. And it's our most important and valuable natural resource and we need to protect it. And we need to protect it not just for your generation and the next generation, but for all all, I mean, for eons moving forward, because that's what's going to produce the food that's going to feed the world. And this is a hungry world. It's not going to get smaller in terms of population. And um, we know we can be, play a very important role in not only feeding the United States, but uh, feeding the rest of the world if we're given access to those markets. And so as a soybean farmer, I know there's a lot of talk here in Washington about what's going on with the tariffs, um, what's going on with the Chinese. How, how challenge, challenging is it right now when you look into the future in terms of growing soybeans, looking at uh, future markets, Ryan? It, it really is. You know, typically every five years when the farm bill discussion comes up, uh, grower groups, that's, that's what we focus 80% of our time on. And lately, I don't want to undersell the importance of the farm bill but our conversations are on exports tariffs you know it's as farmers we understand we need to get more equitable trade but we feel like we're really the pawn in this negotiation and when i when i think about some of the verbiage getting used we need to win the trade war i don't i don't know if we're how we win a trade war when we're taking money out of our pocket. You know, the question is, every ship that gets sent to China of Brazilian beans, they can use that money to improve their infrastructure. And all of a sudden, they can grow beans cheaper than we can grow. And will the trade imbalance really change, or will the goods we get from China, will they move to, say, India or Indonesia? So I think we need to kind of re reevaluate and maybe change the verbiage a little bit on this trade war and realize exactly what it's costing us and what is the ultimate goal what what is a win and it certainly does not feel like we're winning right now when we look at what's happened to the soybean prices specifically in North Dakota where our soybeans go to China they are our market if if we need to move soybeans to Europe then our soybeans need to go over Minnesota beans, Iowa beans, Illinois beans, and that is going to be reflected negatively in our basis. Yeah, and it, just for people who don't understand basis, if you could just give a quick, you know, maybe 30-second explanation, because we talk about basis and everybody in North Dakota knows what that means, but you know, we're hoping that we can get people to understand and appreciate beyond the farm country with this podcast how important um, American agriculture is to them, but also the challenges that you experience. Yeah, basis is basically a fancy word to say how much it costs to get a product from A to B. And, you know, we've 
as we've had this long-standing trade with China, in North Dakota, Minnesota, we've developed excellent infrastructure to move train loads of soybeans to the Pacific Northwest and ship out. So anytime we put tariffs on anywhere, it just messes up the efficiency and transportation. And really, that's where a lot of our advantage lays over Brazil right now. So when we change these things around, we lose our advantage. Yeah, so your basis, your cost of marketing is less because of the the infrastructure that's been developed over a long period of time. And because, uh, you know, Burlington Northern knows what they're doing, the elevators know what they're doing, and everybody has a path, and, and you know you've got a market. I, and, you know, I'm hearing some things that it's very, very difficult to find a market for soybeans, even if you wanted to sell them at a loss. You know, you aren't getting a lot of offers to to buy uh, soybeans out of out of the Pacific Northwest well that's just it you know it's it's like someone who drives to work you know the quickest way to drive to work and when you have detours it takes time and it takes money and that's that's what's happening is our soybeans are getting detoured and right now we don't know if the detour has completely been finished yet where where are our beans gonna go ultimately there will be a buyer, but at what price? Yeah. And as you mentioned in the onset, farm income is down right now, so there's not a lot of profit left. And so we take that cut, it's not going to be any profit left. And at some point, we have to move our beans. You know, I saw Mr. Lighthouser said this trade dispute with China could go on years. Well, we can't build bins and store beans for years. They need to get sent to some market at some point. Well, I, I, I mean, I think that when when you look at um, developing future markets, and I know that the Soybean Export Council has been working very hard at this because I know some of the guys on it, and, and they look at, you know, the emerging market in India, maybe Pakistan, Egypt, we've been able to sell more, more beans there, but they can't even come close, nor can um, uh, Europe come even close to what uh, – uh, what China has purchased in terms of our soybeans. That's right. And, you know, those guys have traveled over there and they've developed the personal relationships that take years. You know, the Asian culture is very dependent on those personal relationships. And they they have those relationships. But unfortunately, the people above them are in this dispute. And it's going to wreck those relationships. And it may, may take another decade to get those back. Well, you know, and I'd love to say that there's there's um, some emerging market that can replace the Chinese market, but when you look on the horizon, it's difficult to find it. It is. It is. So, so Ryan, I, I have a question. Uh, knowing what you know today, um, are, are, how are you going to shift what you produce next year? You know, we try to produce an agronomically sound rotation on our farm. But with that said, we haven't always had soybeans on our farm. Soybeans have taken some canola acres away, and canola is an excellent example of free trade. There's crush plants in North Dakota. There's crush plants right across the border in Canada. And those people, you know, say in Cavalier County, in northeast North Dakota, uh-huh. can move their canola freely up to Canada. Canadians can move their canola freely down into the U.S. So we may be looking at more canola again. Yeah. 
you know so so it's just it's just such a challenge when you kind of look at this and you know i know a lot of people are saying well it's just short term pain but this this is having long term consequences in terms of relationships and disruption in uh in decision making and you know we're, we're like i say we are grateful for the the um temporary assistance that'll hopefully get us through this grow year um it won't as as uh, sunny Purdue said it will not make you whole it will not compensate you for everything that's going to happen as a result of a protracted um, trade dispute. And so the other thing that I think people need to understand, because, um, you know, one thing that farmers don't want is they don't want aid. They want trade. They want to be able to market their products. They know that their future is in these relationships. And this is just making it incredibly difficult um, to see uh, a, a, a path forward. And, and you also have to remember the, 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 the Chinese market for us um, is about population. It's about dietary interests. It's about a growing interest in in uh, animal based protein uh, in in China, and so that's that's an emerging market. And I think I think a lot of people, Ryan, and I mentioned this to Secretary Vilsack, think that you know we'll just keep upping the ante until China will have to say uncle. But I think people, you know, don't haven't really been told that um, when you look at Chinese exports and goods to the United States, which the president has been rightfully concerned about, it is the equivalent of less than 4% of the GDP of the Chinese uh, economy. So it's not 20%. It's not 25%. It is uh, 3.9. If you include services, it's 4.1. And so the question is, will China be willing to take a hit, a 3.9%, a nine percent hit, even if you if you tariffed everything and they stopped exporting anything to the United States, would they be willing to do that um, to wait this out and see opportunities to market their product working with global relationships someplace else? And I think that's a question you all have to ask. Not that we should ever let China have us over a barrel. I think that we should be tough negotiators, but uh, we need partners in this negotiation. And we walked away from TPP, which um, now has left us standing alone in this trade fight with China. And that's, you know, that's what we need to recognize. Anyone who's starting a company, who do you want your customer to be? A customer that is going to buy the same amount from you every year? Or do you want a customer that's going to buy increasingly more and more every year? And that's what China is. That's a growing customer. The EU market, we're, we're very grateful for it. It's not a growing market. It's a stagnant market. So we need, looking forward, we need trading partners that are going to want to increase the amount of products they get from us. And China is that trading partner when it comes to soybeans. Well, you know, and I, 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 I tell people, you know, it's not just about the Chinese tariffs. The steel tariffs have had an impact with uh, with retaliatory uh, responses across the globe on steel tariffs. And, you know, the, all those bins you're going to need to put up to store your soybeans, they're going to cost a little bit more too, Ryan. They are, and it's... And, and the frustrating thing is we have, we have this going on with the tariffs, and then also just internally within our own country, we have demand destruction going on with what has been going on with the RFS, the Renewable Fuel Standards. We were very pleased to have 
the biodiesel numbers we did, but then all of a sudden these small refiner exemptions start happening. And not only are we not moving soybeans to China, we're not able to produce as much biodiesel as we thought we were going to, say, 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so, so you know, you guys are growing. You're growing like crazy. You're efficient. You're doing amazing things. You had great weather. It, it's just there's only that that's the one side, which is you have great product to sell. The other side is we're losing markets. And, you know, that's going to have a, a, a pretty dramatic uh, uh, consequence on on pricing. Um, if you can, in fact, move the product. And that's one of the concerns that I'm hearing is whether you can, in fact, um, move the product. They, never mind if you sell it at a loss, are you going to find any kind of buyer? And so we'll see. Yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I've heard that from some elevator managers, too, that they have they have a lot of rail bought and paid for to move to the Pacific Northwest come soybean harvest, and they're not getting any bids. So then what what happens do they fill up with soybeans, and then where does the corn grower go? Or if they fill up with wheat up in my area, and the soybeans normally get shipped, where do they put the soybeans? Yeah. I, so then where does the farmer put the soybeans? Yeah, it, it, it definitely um, has uh, broader ramifications moving forward. Well, Ryan, listen, we're going to fight for a farm bill, get that farm bill done on time, make sure that you get at least the certainty of that safety net, which um, means that you continue to be the lowest cost producer and you'll continue to be um, producing food that feeds the world and helps stabilize our economy and stabilize the global economy. And I'm going to continue to fight for your markets, um, and whether it is fighting for uh, – uh, transparency and making sure that uh, these small uh, refiner exemptions uh, don't don't uh, aren't aren't a backdoor excuse to erode the RFS, um, or whether it's just making sure that we call a halt to this trade war and that we get back to the negotiating table with our uh, negotiating partners. And thank you for all you've done, and we're so happy to hear that you are a conferee, and we know with your experience that you will get the changes we need to tweak this farm bill. It's a good farm bill. I liken it to, you know, we don't want a new pickup. We just want the pickup we have to go into the shop and a few <laughs> little things that aren't working perfect on it, we need fixed. Yeah. And I think we'll do that. We're going to make some tweaks and we're going to um, get this done. Uh, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it shouldn't be that hard. We got two months, so we're ready to rock and roll. Thanks, Ryan, for joining me on the hot dish. I uh, look forward to seeing you, you back in North Dakota. All right. Thank you, and have a great afternoon. You too. I hope our conversation helped explain how critical a strong farm bill is for North Dakota and rural America. The Senate passed a strong bipartisan farm bill, which included many provisions I fought for to support my North Dakota farmers and ranchers. I'll continue to get input from North Dakota producers as we get to work on this conference committee to make sure the farm bill addresses the needs of our state. With commodity prices falling as the administration's trade war is escalating, we can't waste any time or get bogged down with divisive and partisan politics. The Farm Bill is too important to our farmers and to our rural economy. Thanks for listening to this helping of the hot dish.